So I'm starting a message series today, and it's inspired by one of my favorite books. It's a book that when folks ask me, you know, what are you reading, or what should I read, or, you know, I'm looking to jumpstart my spiritual life, uh, what's, what's something you'd recommend? And it really is this book, among many, but it's one book that I keep coming back to over and over and over again. It's A Path with Heart, A Guide Through the Perils and the Promises of Spiritual Life by Jack Cornfield. Now, some of you might know this because the link is in our weekly, just to give you a little biographical background in terms of who Cornfield is. Like many people in his generation, Cornfield sought outside the parameters of his life for deeper meaning. He was a volunteer in the Peace Corps in 1967 and did not just go over there in the spirit of service, but as a seeker. In his five years over there, he studied, he became acquainted with the Buddhist tradition, became a monk. And in 1972, returned to the United States and recognized that while his path was the right one for him, he could no longer remain a monk. This became clear to him when he was in his beautiful saffron robes one day visiting his sister, walking up Madison Avenue, going to Salon to meet her on Fifth Avenue. And he recognized that people looked at him like he was a Martian. And not just that he was weird to behold, but also this, that because his path was true, even though he would leave being a monk and become a householder, He recognized that if he looked different and set himself apart, he would not be able to relate what he understood to people with whom he wanted to teach and work and live and grow. Eventually, that is exactly what Jack Cornfield has done. He founded the Inside Meditation Society, which still exists in Barre, Massachusetts. He lives very often and teaches at the Spirit Rock Center now in Northern California as a Ph.D. in clinical psychology. The reason... Why I love this book so much, so much, is because it boils down to the essential truths that I keep finding over and over and over again in the spiritual life. That true depth and meaning in this life is a function really of two things he talks about. Seasoning and integration. Seasoning not just in the sense of complexity and flavor, although that's part of it, but seasoning in the sense that the meaning of our lives only emerges over and through and within time. It takes time. So much in our lives is about instant gratification, true depth, true spiritual maturity, which is the chapter that I'm talking about through this message series, takes seasoning and time. Because in that and through that, we get to the second thing that he talks about, integration, gathering up who we are are the whole truth of who we are, not just the nice bits or the bits that we would like to put on a CV, but all of who we are and learning to call it our lives. Like many people in his generation, he became aware of spirituality first in some ways as something extraordinary, as something exotic, as almost a kind of escape. But he says true depth in life as it is in our spiritual journey comes from not seeking any longer that high thing, that pure thing, that pristine thing, but recognizing that it is here and now and in our midst. And so in the prologue to this chapter on spiritual maturity, I want to read you his words that serve as kind of a mission for what I'm going to be talking about. He said that spirituality has become more about who we are than the ideal we pursue. Spirituality has shifted from going to India or Tibet or Machu Picchu to coming home. This kind of spirituality is filled with joy and integrity. This kind of spirituality is both awakened and ordinary. This spirituality allows us to rest in the wonder of life. This mature spirituality allows the light of the divine to shine through us. 
It is this kind of spirituality that runs counter in a necessary way to the deep perfectionism flowing through our society and through our culture. And raise your hand with me if you feel this way as well, perhaps through our very bodies of perfectionism and learning to struggle against those ideals that we think unless we meet, we will not ever be happy. So I thought the best way to start out here today would be to show you the perils of perfectionism. That is a 137-day-old Happy Meal left at room temperature. Seriously, day 137, the Happy Meal Project, August 25th, 2010. That Happy Meal was left out at room temperature for six months. It goes all the way up to 180 days. Say it with me. It's unnatural. It's artificial. That's the only reason why this Happy Meal other. I mean, the person who takes the picture every day who's doing the Happy Meal project says it looks almost exactly the same. It feels like a rock after a while. But it's artificial because it's all about an image and the things that are put into a Happy Meal to have it have this image, this image of perfection, this ideal, quote unquote, burger. Make it at the same time completely unreal. Nothing in nature is meant to stay moment to moment just as it is the same thing over and over and over again. We must change. This is the unnatural burden of perfectionism. Now, the challenge becomes not we just say, ooh, you know, 137 day old Happy Meal left out at room temperature. It doesn't change. There's something weird about that. The challenge is that when we make our own lives into the Happy Meal. The challenge is when we make our own happiness about the Happy Meal and we focus on the image and we focus about maintaining the ideal and we focus on that thing, whatever we call it, that is the supposed idea of perfection. And we focus on the outside and we focus on what we're casting off or throwing out and we neglect the fact that this essentially is, well, it depends how you feel about McDonald's, but I'm going to say this, good looking garbage. We can turn our own lives into that if we neglect those inner resources. If we neglect that, we cannot grow. And so the first thing that spiritual maturity really does is it recognizes how, and I try to say this without judgment because I include myself in it as well too, how immature that desire for perfection is, that idealism that says unless we really reach that goal that we need to be happy, we will somehow be missing the mark and life will be missing us. I recently became acquainted with a blog called Single Dad Laughing. Some of you might know that. Dan Noah. One of his first posts was simply called the disease, disease of perfection. And in it, it's tough to read. He doesn't betray anyone's identity. And maybe he's talking about some of us or the some of us that are that type that he's talking about. About 12-year-old boys who hate their bodies so much because they are not the ideal of strength. Talks about an 18-year-old girl he knew who downed a whole bottle of sleeping pills because she, because she became pregnant out of wedlock and felt she could not match the ideal of what her family expected her to do and that she had not done that. She talks about men, women, who feel they're not making enough money to really earn their value in this world. Talking about adults and maybe it's some of us in this room who cannot stand our own bodies, our bodies that change and grow and don't always look as we wish they would. And because of this, perhaps feel very deep shame. Dan Noah has exactly a two word solution. 
cure, if you will, for the dis-ease of perfection. Be real. Be real. Admit vulnerabilities and weaknesses that we all have doubts and are often uncertain. I find the liberation myself in words and in short sentences like this. I don't know. I was unaware of that. I'm not sure. Would you please help me? Or in those moments when someone asks, are you okay? Perhaps instead of answering, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. We can say, I don't have any of it altogether today. Dan Noah draws a very clear and convincing line between the kinds of bullying of people considered to be other that we've been hearing so much about in the news, between that kind of perfectionism and externalizing doubt out onto other people. When we cannot deal with the fact that we're not living up to our quote-unquote ideals and we're angry at ourselves, it's so much easier to blame someone else, some other, someone we perceive to be weaker, someone we perceive to be lesser, when we cannot understand and cope compassionately with those places within ourselves that feel less than. Now, even if we are not intentionally causing harm to each other in our striving for an idealistic perfection, There are costs. I always ask when I am about to do or perform someone's wedding, two questions. They're for sort of industry standards, and they're industry standards for a reason. First question is, have you thought about kids? You know, it's just a good thing to have a clear sense of. And what I'm largely looking for is, hopefully what I don't see, is this. Oh, my God, we're going to have five or six of them. We're going to move away to that ranch in Montana. We're going to farm it. We're going to work the land. And the other person looks at them, what the hell are you talking about? That's the kind of thing I'm looking for. Because you just should have this kind of conversation before you get to that step of meeting with a minister. You can have kids or not. I don't have any vested interest whether you do or not. It's just that you know that place that you're coming from. There's a second conversation I think in some ways is even more important. What happens when you argue? What happens when you argue with each other, when you fight with each other? For me, the only non-starter is denial. We don't fight. We don't argue. It's pure bliss all the time. And you see the defensiveness starting the minute people say that because it's just not true. And if it is true, well, they're still stuck in that place in relationship that I think it was Darren Starr who created the Sex in the City. I heard him being interviewed on NPR. He said at that point in relationship, at the very start, when we're just sort of, oh, starburst and everything else, what we're doing actually is we are falling in love with the glory of ourselves, <laughs> With that idealized image that we put out there, that's necessary probably at the beginning for a short time. But that idealized image is not the truth of who we are. And we start to take down that idealized image. There's going to be challenge and there's going to be struggle and there are going to be arguments. It's all about how we deal with them in those moments that matters most for a couple who's about to start their life together. I like to counter this, a reading from Theodore Parker, the great Unitarian minister that I often use In marriage ceremonies. I think it's a wonderful understanding of the nature and the seasoning of the commitments that a true marriage is really about. He wrote that a happy wedlock is a long falling in love. Young persons think that love belongs only to the brown haired and the fair cheeked. And so it does for its beginning. But the golden marriage is a part of love of which this wedding day knows nothing of. We are married fractionally. First a small fraction, a large fraction, 
the small fraction, the large fraction, piece by piece in that seasoning of our lives. Ideals, I believe, are at the outset of anything, whether it's a loving relationship, romantic relationship, a relationship with your calling, your career, a relationship with your spiritual life. At the outset, I think those things are necessary, perhaps inevitable. But we know how much a difference there is between falling in love, between those great big bursts of supernova, oh my God, this is unbelievable. The difference between falling in love and staying in love and being in love. Sometimes the more idealistic we are, the more difficulty we have transitioning into that state of the being and the maintaining of the love rather than just the starburst, the supernova moments. When I preached about the Beatles as archetypes of soul and of the spiritual life last spring, I talked about John particularly as the idealist, bearing within him and particularly within his personal life all the problems and the perils that come along with being an idealist. For John, it was not enough to say, she broke up with me, I don't like myself, I'm feeling kind of bad today. No, John had to say, I'm a loser. Thinking globally, thinking completely, thinking idealistically, even in the negative. But the thing is, is that life is always bigger than our categories are for life. There's always some part of life that can never quite fit into our idea of what should be perfect or what will happen. Prescribed reality is always narrow reality. Now, I copped to it then, and I will cop to it now, that I was born much more a John. Although I'm aspiring to, not making idealistic strides toward, but I'm aspiring towards being a George. Much more humble, hopefully. But I am by nature a John. I'm an idealist. I am, I am in the great and actually kind of brutal scene from The Untouchables. Remember the Brian De Palma version of The Untouchables? It's a baseball bat scene. Uh, Robert De Niro. As a, I'm not talking about the scene where he splatters the guy's head. It's before, just before that, just before that. I've never done anything like that. It's a scene where as um, the Al Capone character is walking around, it's he says, a man's got to have enthusiasms. Got to have enthusiasms. I am a person who has known countless, too many enthusiasms. And what I started to recognize myself, especially in the last few years, is that it is not that immature people, like I am, hopefully less than I once was. It's not that immature people cannot have spiritual experiences. It's just that it falls into the category of why can't every day be like Christmas? Or why can't every day, this average, ordinary Sunday, why can't it be like what I experienced at that retreat center during that silent retreat? Why can't it be like that high point back then? It's not that the experience are real, it's just that they're unsustainable. When we cannot make the transition back in to our everyday lives. And so I have come to see, even if I don't always welcome, the necessity, and at times, yes, even the desirability, Of disappointment to learn to be grateful for disappointments because it is very often at the seams of life not the seamlessness but the seam fullness of life where life does not fit all together so well and the holes sometimes open up that it is through those holes that the light and the life can really enter through that is in the cracks of creation that creation can be born again but it's painful and we know that I know that The most important moment in my life, the best moment and the worst moment in my life was the day I got sober. September 19th, 2005. 
It was for me the moment when I recognized the cost of my idealism, of my constant enthusiasms, and of my ability to tell myself lies about my life were eventually going to cost me even more than they had cost me already. They were going to cost me the opportunity to be the husband that I believed I could be. They were going to cost me the opportunity to be a man and a minister of really just some kind of baseline integrity. In that moment, I felt free and I felt empty. I felt lonely and I felt beloved. And I was convinced of only two things, because everything else had become uncertain in that moment. That I was still somehow worthy of love. There was a love I could never be separated from. And also an expectation. Not an ideal, but an expectation. That I had more love to give. And on the current trajectory of my life, I was not going to be able to provide the love that was needed from me. For the first time, I had to start taking, and that honesty continues to this day. Hopefully fearless, not always, but it continues. I had to start really looking at my life. All of it, not just the parts that I liked, not just my ideals. The great mystic poet Rumi said these words, and I resonate with them so much. Rumi said in one of his poems, if God said, Rumi, pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms. Rumi responded, there would not be one experience of my life, not one thought, not one feeling, not one act that I would not bow to. The thing with the idealist, the perfectionist, they do not believe Rumi's right here. The perfectionist wants to limit the scope and the size of their inquiry because they believe, perhaps I have believed, that the territory really is conveyed by the map of the territory. But the map is never the territory. I don't care how good Google Maps is. It will never contain all of the territory that it wants to map. It is very often, as Walt Whitman said, the minute we go off-road, off-map, into that place of discovery, the place, as we talk about in our DNA, where the caterpillar enters the chrysalis to become the butterfly, and there is that moment and that time of seasoning and gestation and integration of the new life, those moments, all we can do is go into them openly. I mean, it's not easy. Think about how many of us just have problems asking for directions when we're lost. How much more difficult it is to do the deepest parts of ourselves. Those moments when we can go into the open road and discover those moments of the seams, such deep moments of grace and even gratitude we can experience there. If, I believe, we can leave the judgment of the perfection aside for just a moment and replace it with something else, which is compassion. I've developed in my life a simple way of talking myself, not through, but alongside And perhaps if you're in one of those moments where the seams are opening up in your life right now or the next time you find yourself in one of those moments, to say to yourself, this is not the end. It's just the end of this. It's not the end. Not thinking as John did, I'm a loser. It's not the end. It's just the end of this. Whatever that this is for you, that seems, that seems to be coming to a close. The good news, I would even say the great news in all of this, as Cornfield encourages us, inspires us to do in the book, 
is that the moment we can move beyond our desire to make the world perfect, we can actually strive, aspire to perfect our love for the world. Not to have the world conform to our image of what it must be, but to grow into that deeper, open-hearted place of true love that provides the seeds of the deepest change because we know and we have witnessed in life, even though it's the most difficult change to go through, that the more people who can grow a bigger heart for the world, the more the world itself actually can change and unfold and grow. The more the hidden potential in things can be revealed. This is, I think, at the deepest level what many spiritual teachers talk about when they talk about the experience of healing, whether it's in body or mind or in spirit. Cornfield talks about this, and he uses a particular reading, a particular image that I love. It's from Thomas Merton, who was somewhat older, was somewhat older than Jack Cornfield, but represents some of the strivings of that generation. Merton had a vision once. Merton, who engaged with world traditions, not from a place of superiority, but from a place of true, deep learning and resonating with that which was true. Merton said once he was outside a regular, average, everyday, you know, shopping supermarket, 1960s mall kind of thing. And suddenly he had a vision. He had a vision, and Cornfield holds this up. The vision of the deepest secrets of our hearts of that innate wholeness that is a part of all of us and that Merton said in his language that neither brokenness nor desire nor anything else that we tell about ourselves can take that away from us. The only problem, he said, if we really believe this and live from that place, the only problem we'd have is we would bow down before each other and start worshiping each other. (laughs) Namaste if we really meant it, you know? He said that would be the only problem At that deepest level, I think that's what a lot of people talk about when they talk about that big word, reconciliation. What is it to be reconciled to life, to our life, to the shape of our hearts, to who we really are? It doesn't mean everything is great all the time. It means that it's there and it it commands, it asks our attention. Pay attention to it because it is our lives. I witnessed the most profound, profound expression from a public official that I have ever seen this past week in the act of healing and of reconciliation. Some of you know it. I put it on my Facebook page. It's on our Wellsprings Facebook page as well, too. It's from Joel Burns, a Fort Worth city councilman. Now, it's part of an overall absolutely very necessary message that's going out to the world right now called it's get, It Gets Better. It is designed to reach hopefully all of us, but especially those GLBT youth who unfortunately, tragically find that the world despises them or that they are bullied or beaten or belittled because of who they are. The hope of the message of It Gets Better is saying to these young kids, these teens who are thinking that perhaps the only way through is out of life and are thinking of killing themselves. That's the message. It gets better. And it's from people who have traveled that path and who know, who know how non-ideal life can be for young GLBT people. Now, Joe Burns tells his story, tells his story all throughout his life. And he said, actually, in this moment, and this is already when the tears have started to flow. 
I've never told anyone this before, but he tells about his development. He talks about what it was like to have sort of an average, normal childhood in a lot of ways, playing the basketball team, not very well, what it was like to be the son of a Methodist church piano player, what it was like to be the son of a true West Texas cowboy. And then that moment when he started to have feelings that he had no idea or no way how to make sense of. Feelings that the world around him told him were not ideal, were not his perfectionistic idea of what a man should be or what a man should feel. And then he had that day, like so many GLBT youth do, tragically, unfortunately, unnecessarily, when he was ashamed and beaten up and humiliated by a bunch of his classmates. And who said to him, and these are his words, faggot, you should die and go to hell. Because that is where you belong. And Joel Burns thought about that. Maybe I am so corrupted, so non-ideal from those ideals that other people are telling me about, that there's no life left for me. But he survived. And he goes on to tell the story in this video, and I can only convey barely even a fraction of the power of this thing. Watch it. It is so incredibly moving and powerful. He says, if I could go back to that 13-year-old boy and show him that moment when I went up on that West Texas hillside with nothing other than myself and the man I wanted to spend my life with, nothing other than us than black Angus cattle all around And I shared with him the ring that I spent my last dollar dollar on and said, I want us to spend our lives together. All these moments that he would not have had if he would have internalized all those perfectionistic ideals about what he was supposed to be. And then the moment of the video that for me, I've seen it three times, I cry every time. The moment in the video when he says what that 13-year-old me would see at Baylor University Medical Center at the hospital, taking the lined, seasoned hand of my now almost 70-year-old father, that lined, seasoned, imperfect hand, and have him say to me, Joel, I'm so glad you are here. And to say back to his father, I am glad I am here too, Dad. This healing, this reconciliation, it's not about being perfect. It starts in recognizing how less than ideal life often is. But this reconciling power of love, I think, is the deepest power in our lives. It is, as Merton said, or as Pima Chodron said, talking about getting to that place at the bottom, not at the heights of perfection, but at the bottom of our very lives, where we find the healing waters of love there that do not die. Finding in that the source of our deepest strength. The world doesn't need, I don't think we offered to give the perfect description of what that moment is about, I think we only need to believe this, that it is absolutely real and it is the source and the center from which we can heal and reconcile ourselves to life. 
I believe that more than anything else right now and probably in any age, the world needs this kind of leadership. It needs this kind of inspiration. It needs more Joel Burns telling the imperfect stories of their amazing and lovable lives, speaking from that place, leading from that place, ministering from that place, parenting from that place, being a child from that place, being imperfect from that place, growing and loving from that place. To learn to do this requires seasoning and integration and takes a lot of time and has a lot of tears. Perhaps, though, we can believe that not at the end, but as we go through, that those tears and those struggles, they are watering the ground and breaking up the ground that contain those seeds of that new life that is always within us. Amen. May you live in blessing.